good. Are we supposed to be judgmental? No. What are we supposed to do? We have two commandments. Two main commandments. And who remembers what those were? What was the first most important commandment? When they asked the Lord, what's the most important commandment? What did he say? Second unto the, like unto the first. And both of them have the same word, love. Now, love from God's perspective, not love from a fleshly perspective. The love of a father, right? So, you see your kid getting ready to go play in the street. If you love them, do we say, no, don't go out in the street? Or do we say, be with God? Go ahead. I've wanted you to make your own decisions for a long time. Go ahead. That would be disastrous, right? We love them so we set boundaries. God loves us so he sets boundaries. We love them so we set chores. God loves us so he sends chores. All for the glory of him and for the work of the kingdom. Love has an opposite. And a lot of people say, well, that's hate. Okay, in simplistic terms. But favoritism is an enemy of love. We all remember being a victim of favoritism, don't we? I mean, some of you are young enough that you're probably dealing with it now and uh, in school, right? Oh, you know, that, that, that group doesn't want to hang out with me. I tried to go play. You know, one of the things I do uh, is I do chapel service for the Christian school in uh, Camp Verde. And then I take that and I also apply it in the regular elementary school where my wife's a third grade teacher. Um, where she comes home every day all haggard <laughs> and she's wore out and she says, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go out. I don't want to go out. She used to teach fifth grade. We both used to teach fifth grade. And it was kind of our wheelhouse. Third grade, not so much. But I was asked to go and teach because uh, coming off of COVID, you know, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of the kids that came off of lockdown and things like that and they just, it's like they forgot how to act in school. And they're bullying each other and throwing rocks at each other. I mean, it's, it's getting pretty, pretty bad. And so they said, well, will you come and teach character to these kids? Morality and all that stuff. And I said, well, sure, I'll, I'll try and teach 800 kids how to behave. So <laughs> started with first grade. Oh, they're like sponges. They're just great. Um, third grade, starting to get a little hard. But I see this a lot and, and you know, one of the things I teach kids is that bullying creates bullies. When you exclude a kid, and then you make fun of that kid, and then you say mean things about that kid, and call that kid names, eventually, I, you know, I ask them, even first graders get this. I say, what does that make that child feel like? And they say, sad. Good. Now what else does it make that child feel like? And they say, mad. And then this is where they... They always want to say it right, but they don't do it. I say, well, then what is he going to do when he gets mad? And they say, he's going to tell the teacher. No, he's not going to tell the teacher. What he's going to do is he's going to try and retaliate against you. And when that doesn't work, the first grader is going to find the kindergartner and start picking on the kindergartner. And we see this. We see it time and again in every grade. Bullies create bullies. Well, did you know we create bullies? In the church, in the Bible, we do the same thing. When we, when we do this favoritism, when we lock somebody out, 
See, it's natural human nature. We all like to hang out with people that look like us. We all like to hang out with people that dress like us, that eat like us, that like the same things, like the same music. But where is the excitement and the joy if everybody's the same? It gets boring. You already know what they like. I mean, you're going to ask, hey, where do you want to go to eat to dinner? What are they going to say? What does your wife say? I don't care. I'm going to create a restaurant with a sign that says, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and another one across the street that says, I don't know. We see this favoritism happen in, in kids, you know, on the school, on the, on the playground, even with siblings and friends, friend groups, you get the clicks. But we see that in adults, too. How many times have you been in an adult group and gone, man, this is so high school? We've all done that. You know, so-and-so, they start, they start talking about people behind their back. Well, how does this play out in the church? Who has a favorite actor? Actress, sports player, somebody's got to have something. Chase Elliott. Chase Elliott, okay. So, now I'm talking about, you see this, this person and you think, you know, we always say, he puts his pants on one leg at a time just like I do. But you know what? His pants are a little neater than mine. Because when he walks in the room, I'm still going, look who's here. Oh, it's Chase Elliott. Right? Chase, come sit right down here up in front. Come sit right here. Can we all get your autograph? Can we all come talk to you? Uh, could, you could you move? Let, let, let Chase Elliott sit right here. And that's what he's talking about right here. Are we supposed to do that? No. No. Because to God, Chase Elliott definitely puts on pants one leg at a time, just like the rest of us. Right? But that's what he's talking about. You see that person with the gold ring and you give them the best spot in the, in the assembly. And the other people you relegate to the outside. Well, what does that make those people feel like? What am I, chop liver? How am I ever going to get into this clique? James says that this cannot be. Now, we're talking about Jesus' brother, right? James is just writing this. And yet, there is a controversy between him and people like Paul and Peter. Does anybody know what that controversy is? We're going to talk a little bit about it today. How are we justified? Through faith. Through faith. We're, we're told that everywhere, right? Everywhere except, what does James say? Show me your works to show me. And people see that. Even Martin Luther saw that and said, well, that epistle is an epistle of straw because it doesn't fit into what, I, what my belief system is. I believe in Paul and Peter and all those guys. And then you got this one rebel who says, no, you've got to do works. Where is your justification? Show me. You tell me that you're justified in, in faith. Show me your justification in faith. I'll show you my, how my works justify me. Again, paraphrasing. And people see that and they say, oh, it's a contradiction. But it's not. Context is important. Who is Peter talking to or Paul? They're talking to people who came out of the law, right? They're talking to people who 
have this attitude because they're mixed Jews and Gentiles for Paul and, and for Peter, they're, they're Jews, but they're talking to people that came out of the law. And so they're trying to add stuff to their salvation. And they're going, no, you don't have to. The salvation's free. But who is James talking to? James is talking to people who were freely given, didn't have to do anything for it, never had to do it before. And so their attitude is, well, I'm done, I don't have to do anything. And he's saying, no, that's, you're getting this wrong. You're getting your justification wrong. You're getting your faith wrong. Faith is actually a verb. Faith is an action. So we'll come back to that, but how about verses 5 through 7? If somebody would read that. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs, heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you? What is the curse of wealth? Anybody know? Anybody hazard a guess? Wanting more. For many people, enough's never enough. Whatever you get, you've got to get more. Whatever you get, you've got to have more. Now, is having wealth wrong? No. Loving it, that's wrong, because you're putting it above God. You're idolizing the money. That's why they say that that that's a, that, that is one of the greatest sins is the love of money, right? But it's what you do with it or how you carry it. There was a pastor, and I've read about it. I couldn't tell you where it was, but it was, a, it was an awesome, <laughs> awesome gimmick he did. But, so he's preaching, and he's got a kind of a packed house. He's talking and he's talking and in the meantime they hear the door open and here comes this disheveled homeless guy. He's walking down the middle and he finds the biggest crowd and he goes excuse me and, and he, he, he smells he's dirty anyway he goes over there and he you might want to scooch over sits down okay people are all around him kind of giving him sideways looks Preacher's talking, and in the middle of the talking, the man pulls out a sandwich, starts eating it, starts making weird noises, you know, humming to himself, that kind of stuff. And people, what do you think they're going to do? What would you do? Don't tell me what you think I want to hear you would do. What would you do? Move. <laughs> You're probably going to move, right? And that's what they did. They started slowly, slyly sliding over, getting away from him. And then the preacher stopped, and he in, uh, introduced the man, and then he started talking about partiality in the church. It was a decoy. He'd had this guy dressed up, put on this odor and everything else to prove to people that, hey, you know what? Words are cheap. You can say one thing, 
but how are you going to actually carry it out? How are you going to act? And, and of course, that humbled a lot of people and it probably uh, really raised the attendance the next week. But um, people looked at this person and said, he's different. He smells different. He acts different. We don't want to be associated with that. What is he doing in this church? Many of you probably heard the story of the, of the kid that, you know, he's modern-day hippie, long hair, sandals, short, Bermuda shorts, comes walking down, in, comes walking into a church, an affluent church, and, and uh, you know, people are just kind of casting sideways looks as he walks down, and he can't find a seat. Nobody will move for him, so he goes all the way down the front, and he really wants the message, so he sits down right in front of the pulpit, just sits on the floor. And have you heard this story? There was a deacon, and he was a grizzled old deacon. He was, he always had that look like, I don't want to be here, right? He wanted to be in church, but he didn't want to be here. And so he's got his, his little cane, and he sees that kid down there. He's got that sour look on his face, and so he just, and he's addressed to the nines. He's in a suit and tie, comes to church that way every week. People are like, all right, Ethan, tell him my boy's gonna, he's gonna fix this. He's gonna get that outsider out of here. That kid doesn't belong here. Shuffles all the way down, shuffles all the way down. Gets down to where the kid is, looks at him. Sets his cane down, squats down, sits right there beside him. That was not planned, but he did not want somebody to come in and sit alone. He was the church. And the preacher stopped his sermon right in the middle of all of it and says, what I tell you today, you will not remember. But what you saw today, you will remember for the rest of your life. And that's true. I mean, I wish we could emulate that. We're all the church. We can't be partial. Wealth or poverty is not a sign of punishment not a sign of blessing. God gives to who he gives. God takes from who he takes. And he does it to serve his will. And his will is right and just. And we know, according to Romans, that he works everything out to the good of those who love him. Doesn't always feel like that, though, does it? Doesn't always feel like we're being loved. But Job had that same problem, didn't he? Job was wealthy. I mean, he had everything. But he was right with it. He knew how to handle it. Where he kind of erred a little bit when it all got taken away from him. He didn't care about that initially. He really didn't really take a lot of the, you know, he really didn't start feeling like, okay, maybe I, I, I am, you know, in need of some, some clarification from God until it started affecting his body. You know, when it's, it's interesting because God took away everything, <laughs> kids, wife, everything, and he just said, well, the Lord gives and takes away. It's when it got deep inside is when he started to finally, and of course he had the, the well-meaning help of the not-so-good helpers trying to tell him, well, you must have done something wrong. But no, we learn from that. God doesn't reward or punish based on our actions. It's based on what his will is for us. He will use 
a non-believer if it serves his purpose. So what's the point of wealth then? but I'm doing okay without it. Some people have it and they do all right with it. Some people have it and they do worse with it than they would without it. Some of the happiest people you'll find is if you cross that border down south and go into some of the poverty-stricken towns, those people are content. Why? They got what they need. They have God, they have Jesus, and they have a roof over their head. Matthew seven sixteen says, you'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? If you're in Christ, your fruits are going to show it. And that's kind of the point that James is trying to make. It's not that, hey, you've been given salvation, you don't have to do anything else. Your fruits show your salvation. If you're saved, you're going to want to follow Christ's commandments. Why? Because Christ wants us to do that so that we can be a light and draw other people in. God would that nobody be lost. He's long-suffering and patient. That's why when, the, when a lot of the, people, the former, former believers or old believers say, you know, where's the second coming? Because it's been like this since our fathers went to rest. Well, no, it hasn't been like this since your fathers went to rest. There was a flood. There was, there was the scattering at Babel. I mean, God's been involved in everything to try and bring as many people back as he possibly can. Then he gave us Jesus, his, his ultimate coup de grace. Things haven't been the same. And now, what's his waiting for? You know, we, we, we try to come, well, he talks about it when he talks about the day being a thousand years, a thousand years being a day. He's long-suffering and patient, doesn't want anybody to be lost, so he's given everybody the, as much opportunity as possible to come back, to come to him. And for us, his arm here on earth, to spread that message, to get it out there. Poor rich, doesn't matter. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.3. One of the other things I have to tell those kids and the way I start with it is, is are you any more important than him? Are you any more important than her? Nobody is more important than anybody else because we have in the church access to the great equalizer, baptism. When we're, baptized, when we're baptized, we're brought up into the body. We're all the same. You know, before that, God looked at us as all the same, worthless wretches that were sinners. After that, he looks at us as all the same, part of the body of Christ, purchased with Christ's blood. Nobody's any better than anybody else. But can things always be fair? No. We tell our kids that all the time, right? I can't always be fair if I give you all the same thing. And again, where's the excitement in that? All of them get the same thing. I mean, I could give all my grandchildren the, the same toy. Now they're not going to play with each other. They're not going to share anything, right? Nobody's going to be able to tell anybody anything Look at what my toy does. Yeah, I know, mine does too. They're all the same. You got to have some variety in there. Now, I'm not saying that's why God does what he does. I don't know that's why God does what he does. And it really doesn't matter, does it? 
what matters for us is to understand that everybody's important. We have to welcome everybody. From the guy, even the guy on the street that's faking it. Because I hear that a lot. Well, you know, we know there's a lot of homeless people out there, people that are begging that they, they don't. They get in their car and later and leave. So that's just what they're doing to make money. Maybe. Or it could be somebody with a mental illness. That's why a lot of them can't hold jobs. It could be that it is somebody that's just taking advantage of everybody else. But who needs God the most then? That person or the righteous person? Christ said, I, I didn't come, you know, a doctor doesn't go to visit the healthy. He's there for the sick. We have to make other people feel equal because we're all equal in God's eyes. Otherwise, we're just, we're just playing another worldly mentality because hierarchies and differences are worldly concepts, not God's. He taught us not to do that. Let's go to verse 8 through 11. Could somebody read that for us? If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You do well. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin. Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now, if thou committest no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. Back to the law again, aren't we? James loves the law, it seems like. No? Again, context. These are people that thought, I have my salvation. I can do whatever I want. And we see that, don't we? With a few people out there in the world that they think because they're saved or they have their get out of hell free card, yeah, it's okay if I go ahead and cheat on my taxes. It's okay if I go ahead and shoplift this little thing. It's okay if I go ahead and segregate that person over there because I'm forgiven already. It's okay if I don't show forgiveness to somebody else because God forgave me. And God forgives, not me. That's, 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 I'm not perfect. That's God's thing. God will forgive them. That's, the, that's their problem. But is it? Are we not grafted in to his people? Are we not considered Christ's brethren? He's the firstborn of the dead. We're to follow. <coughs> we're brought into, we're adopted into the royal family. So we can't just make excuses. But pastor, you said the law was superseded. Was it? The Ten Commandments were Mosaic law. But guess what's in the New Testament? Nine of them. They're scattered throughout there, but you'll find them. And there's one place where all of them are condensed. And it's in that part that we talked about earlier where the, where the 
The religious elite asked Jesus, well, what's the most important law? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. And the second is like unto the first, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Loving God, well, that's the first four commandments condensed into one. Because if you love God, you'd follow all those rules. Have no other God before me. Don't have any graven images. But if, if you're talking about loving your neighbor, well, that's the last six. Because those six deal with our interactions with each other. Respect mother and father. You know, don't covet. Don't steal. Don't lie. Those are all how we treat each other. Love does not do those things. And so he's saying, love your neighbor. Which will, if you're doing that, truly doing that, the way he taught, you're not violating those commandments. So, was the law nailed to the cross with him? Yeah. And then he clarified the moral laws in the New Testament. The one thing that's not there, Sabbath. Why? Because what do we hear that Jesus is? The Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. He's our rest. Now, again, like I said before, Acts 17.11. The Berean Jews are more noble than those of Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, yet studied the scriptures daily to prove whether or not they were so. That is a fancy way of saying just because Pastor Brian Wattenbarger says it does not make it true. You have to find out for yourself. You should be in this book. God wants you to know the scriptures. Why? Your enemy knows it very well and will use it against you at every turn. James here is using the law as a measure. He's using it as a measuring stick. He's not talking about using it as this is the way you're saved. The law doesn't save you. The Ten Commandments, many say, well, the Ten Commandments were given to prove that we can't follow them without God. I don't necessarily subscribe to that purpose, but they do prove it, right? Because when Jesus go ahead, went ahead and clarified what they meant, don't murder. Well, I haven't killed anybody. Well, did you say you didn't like somebody? Did you say you hated somebody? Did you call somebody cool? Because that's the same as murder, as far as God's concerned. Well, I didn't commit adultery. Well, did you look at that woman in the short skirt when she walked by and then thought to yourself, wow, well, you just committed adultery because you had lust in your heart. Or Fabio on, you know, for you women, Fabio on TV or whatever. I don't know. Faith is known by works. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth, And then believe in your heart. Why do we have to confess? Why do we have to say it? If we believe in our heart, aren't we saved? We're saved by faith. What James is trying to say is, is you guys need to get the right point of faith, what faith actually means. If you, can, if you believe in your heart, yes, that's true. But what good is that faith if you're not acting on it? That's why you have to confess with your mouth. How are you going to bring other people if you don't confess with your mouth? Did it work well for Peter when he denied Jesus three times? No, he felt so guilty, he just, he, he thought he was lost. He went back to the boat. Christ still had a plan for him. He'd already prayed for him that it would come out of it, and he did. And he became one of the most vocal adversaries to the religious elite after that. 
never wasted a time to tell them how they killed their Messiah. <laughs> Christ, whom you crucified. Every speech, he starts with that. So he talks about stumbling. He says, if you stumble, you stumble. He's not saying that you stumble, you, you go to hell. But he does say, you are going to stumble. And when you stumble, it's a sin. And of course, the cure for that, for us who are saved, is to repent, to turn away, to change our minds, and not do it again. It's just that simple. I, mean, it's, it, I don't know why any of you feel like you, you sin anymore, because it's that simple, right? You just, you just repent, you change your mind, and, and, and that's it. You won't ever do it again. Is that right? Wrong. No. No. We know that we're still going to mess up. We can't help it. We're in the world. But we can't use that for an excuse. It wasn't given to us as an excuse. So what laws, you know, because he's talking about this, he says, fulfilling the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's the royal law. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted of the law as violators. Well, I don't remember reading in the Ten Commandments or anywhere else in the law that favoritism or partiality is a sin. Can you show me in Scripture where it says, hey, partiality is a sin? Yeah, right here in James. <laughs> but when he was talking, this was not Scripture. Only the Old Testament was Scripture. For these guys... You know, the, the, the chapters and all those things, those weren't invented. It was just, it was scripture, right? Chapter divisions are not inspired. They just, that's what man did to make it easier to come up here and stumble on my own tongue. But where does it say in the Old Testament, partiality is a sin? Well, it doesn't directly, but it does say it in the Ten Commandments. It violates eight of them, or can violate eight of them. Favoritism means you're putting you're you're picking people that you relate to, right? You're picking people maybe that are like you. They're the, they dress the same, they they like the same things, they play this, they listen to the same music, same hobbies. That's a fleshly concept. And it violates the first law. You shall have no other gods before me. Your favoritism is just an expression of your self-love. You like those because they're like you, and you love you. Well, if you love you and you're favoring them, aren't you putting them and you above other people? Which means you are putting them even above God, in a sense. Because God doesn't cater to that. He doesn't like that. We can't worship our heroes. You shall make no idols. A lot of times favoritism ends up in idol worship, doesn't it? Because we end up idolizing that. We, we say it's a term. Oh, I idolize him. He's so great. Yeah, you got to be careful with that. Right? Because that's not that's not the way we're supposed to see people. Honor your father and your mother. Sometimes it can violate that if we 
if we show favoritism or partiality that goes against, you know, goes against even our parents, well, we're not honoring them. Shall not murder. Sometimes your partiality results in, in a sense, in the sin of murder because you're maybe denigrating somebody else in favor of this person. Again, if you say raka, thou fool, you'd be in danger of the judgment, right? Or of hellfire. Because you're violating that commandment. You're murdering. Committing adultery, shall not steal. All these things could be related to partiality and favoritism. Perfect law. It's written in our hearts. We learn that in Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And some people will say, well, that's Israel. Are we not grafted into Israel? We're told we're grafted into Israel. We're grafted in and partakers of the promise. I will put my law within them and write it on their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Hebrews 10, 15 through 16 these are just small verses, so you don't have to go there. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant which I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws upon their hearts and write them on their minds. When you're in faith, when you're in Christ, and that Holy Spirit is in you, and you're not grieving it, and you can hear it, he's always leaning you towards the right direction, towards the law, the perfect law. And I would argue those perfect laws would be that royal, those royal laws. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you stumble, you stumble. If you stumble by simply saying, or simply treating somebody better, it's still a sin. Right? Just as well as if you, because if you stumble at one point, he tells us we stumble in the whole law. And again, the law is not the point. The point is the faith. And people read that with James, and they, but the way it's written, they say, well, he, he's, he's saying something totally opposite of everybody else. But no, he's not. It's just a different context. He's you got to consider who he's talking to. He's trying to tell those people that are just, you know, that they just have lackadaisical faith, cheap grace. No, that's not enough. That's not real. That's not real faith. And it's not. Because Christ told us how to act, how to exercise our faith. How to treat one another. Look at the Beatitudes. So speak and so act. This is verse 12 and 13 of James. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is a Christian's everything. Right? That's what makes us who we are. Because we have been granted grace and mercy. Well, let's turn to... Whoa. Let's... Uh, I was about to yell, but I don't want to yell. And have that come back on. <laughs> everybody, everybody running out of here like this. Oh, my light's on. Oh, this one's dying. It's, it's got the battery flashing. Okay. 
I'll just give it to you. All right, so. Um, Y'all can hear me? Because I'm a loud mouth. That's what my wife says. Mercies are everything. What about withholding it? Everybody, please turn to Matthew 18, verse So we're going to read 23 through 35, and I'd like to just go through the whole thing. Does anybody want to read that, or do you want me to do it? Go ahead. All right, Matthew 23. I'm sorry, Matthew 18, verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. By the way, I'm in the NASB, so if you're reading the King James Version, you're going to have to translate to yourself. Um, so he wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. That sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? Settling accounts with slaves? What do, you have, what do you owe a slave? But see, slaves had a different connotation back then. They were to be treated well. They were to be taken care of. They were not just forced labor. They were servants. So when he began to settle these accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment be made. Maybe the slaves are treated well, but if you owe a debt, they're still going to treat you like you owe a debt. So it was basically the equivalent of the, the uh, Old Testament equivalent of uh, debtor's prison, Old and New Testament. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. Not only did he say, okay, I'll give you more time. He said, never mind, your debt's, your debt's paid in full because you, because you showed obeisance to me. But then the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, <coughs> just significantly less than the, than the uh, talents. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead, and, to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that happened. They saw some bullying, and they went and told the teacher. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pled with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now going back to James. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We can't withhold mercy to others. And yet, on a daily basis, many of us do. 
over some of the slightest things. People think, I don't need to forgive. Like I said, God forgives. God forgives me. God forgives anyway. And so, can we use mercy from God as an excuse to withhold it from somebody else? Absolutely not. No. It was not given to us for that reason. Well, let's take a break. I'm running a little five minutes behind here, so let's go ahead and take a break, and I'll, we'll pick it up here. <laughs> 